0: Welcome again, glad you are all here this morning. Thank you for joining us online and on site. It's nice to see everybody's faces. Have you Floridians noticed the uh, that fall has set in? Yeah, we're literally wooing for 88 degree days and 5% less humidity. So that is, that Floridians, yeah. So uh, seriously though, we're, we're honored that you've uh, come here, that you've become a part of this community. If you have any questions about Hammock Street Church, what makes us tick, what we really are all about, please ask me or ask anybody with a name tag or anybody who looks like they know what they're talking about. Uh, That'll all work. So uh, go ahead and check that out. We'd love for you and your family to consider Hammock Street Church as your church home. If this is your first Sunday here, you've picked a really good day to stop by because today we are beginning a brand new sermon series called Big Church. So, I'd like to jump right in and start us off with a question. The question is this. What is church? Hmm. What is church? Prior to my 30th birthday, when I heard the word church, this is what I pictured. That is St. Catherine's of Siena. It's a Catholic church in Miami, in Kendall, actually, which is my neighborhood where I grew up. I was never a member there, of course. I'm Jewish, but it was across the street from our housing development, our neighborhood. So we drove past it every day. And I knew that it was a church because it had a sign in front of it that said church right on it. So and also it kind of looks like what you think a church is supposed to look like. But I never went in. Never went into that church. While I lived in Miami, I actually eventually did go into that church because one of my brothers got married in that church. So yes, I did go in eventually. But the question also now is, what comes to your mind when you hear the word church? There's lots of different choices, lots of different types of church. Obviously, I can't know what you imagine when you hear the word church. Or, or for that matter, I can't imagine what you feel When you hear the word church, for some people, church is a very emotional thing, and and certain feelings stir inside of people, but no matter which way you lean, there is one thing that I am quite confident of, and that is this. Whatever it is that you think about church, or whatever it is that you feel about church, and when you hear the word church, it is nothing like what the people in the first century A.D. thought of when they thought of the first gathering of the church, because When it began, the church was understood as a movement, not as an institution. And it was a movement that did not begin with any prescribed rites and rituals, nor did it begin with any tried and true traditions. In fact, at the beginning of the church movement, there weren't even any New Testaments. There were no Bibles, no Christian Bibles. There weren't any buildings. There was no one who was on staff, and there was no leadership hierarchy. From the very beginning, the church was a movement, and it was a movement that was centered around a simple idea. And it's an idea that, sadly, nowadays, we typically talk about only one time a year at Easter time. Because from the beginning, the church movement was centered around an historical event. It was centered around the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection that overcame the sin problem of God's people. And it was the resurrection of Jesus that caused the first century believers to come together around the fact that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. That he was the Messiah. That he was the Savior of the world. And it was that event, along with the testimony of eyewitnesses to that event, that launched the church. But I want you to remember remember this. The church began as a movement. So, the first thing that we're going to do in this series is we're going to start off with some background about the whole notion of the church. And we're going to do that today by looking at the original Greek and the history of how the church developed over the years. Now, whether you grew up Catholic or Protestant or outside of the church altogether, it's my hope that what we talk about today will help you to expand your understanding of the church and that by the end of the time we have together this morning, I hope that everyone here can start to rethink whatever they used to think about church, to rethink the way that we consider church and really to ultimately redefine in our hearts what church is truly all about through today's message, which I'm calling Opening Day. Okay? So, won't you pray with me, and then we'll get going. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together here this morning. I thank you for the technology that brings people here online. I thank you for the ease that has become really commonplace that allows us to come here in person, allows us to gather together freely, allows us to study your word. So God, as we continue on this morning, I ask that you would use your word to open our hearts and minds and transform us. We love you, God. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Hopefully everybody recognizes this sign. Because if you're here on site, you walked under it when you came in to the building this morning. It's attached above the door to this particular room. It is the word ekklesia. Now, ekklesia is a Greek word that is translated as church in our English Bibles. Ekklesia means a called out assembly, a gathering, a congregation. And throughout the New Testament, the Greek New Testament, the word ecclesia indeed refers to that very thing. To a called out assembly, to a gathering, and to a congregation of people who follow Jesus. So, the early church, the ecclesia started by Jesus and carried on by his disciples, began as a called out assembly, a gathering, and a congregation centered on one simple idea with a simple mission and a simple focus. But things changed. And over time, the ecclesia went from a movement centered around a simple message and a simple event in time and space, the resurrection. It went from that to being a location. The ecclesia went from being a gathering centered around an event to an organization centered around the rules and a strict hierarchy. So the question becomes, how did that happen? Well, I'm going to tell you how that happened. In late 312 AD, when getting ready to face his rival emperor, Maxentius, Roman Emperor Constantine and his men had a vision. They believed this vision was sent to them by the Christian God. And the vision told them that if they painted the Christian sign of the Cairo, which was the sign for the Christians, because Cairo are the two first letters in the name of Jesus's title, the Christ. If they placed that sign on their shields, the vision told them, they would defeat Maxentius and Constantine would be the sole emperor of Rome. Well, they did that and it worked. Constantine prevailed in the Battle of the Milvin Bridge. Now, as a result... The next year, in 313 A.D., Emperor Constantine issued the Edict of Milan, which allowed Christians and Romans of all faiths the liberty to follow that mode of religion, which to each of them appeared best. So in other words, freedom of religion was granted at that time in 313 in the Roman Empire. Now, this move reversed about 300 years of Rome's deadly persecution of Jesus' followers. Okay, so after Constantine, a few more emperors came along, and at a minimum, these other emperors tolerated Christianity. They were no longer throwing the Christians to the lions after that. And some of those emperors actually embraced Christianity. And as a result, Christianity continued to grow and continued to increase its popularity. Then in about 380 A.D., Roman Emperor Theodosius I made it the official state religion of the Roman Empire. So this is where the Roman Catholic Church comes up. That's exactly how it gets connected, at least in the very, very beginning. Okay, it wasn't exactly the Catholic Church yet, but they took these Roman temples and things like that and basically put new signs on them. Under new management, we're now a Christian church. Now, with that... Began a not so honorable period in Western history, which was predicated upon, in part, a misunderstanding of the word ecclesia. So, over time, the movement described by that very clear, very specific Greek word, ecclesia, that movement transitioned over time to an entirely different thing, and it shifted from a movement to an organization. Well, later on in the fourth century, As the Germanic peoples were being converted to Christianity, a new name became attached to the ecclesia. And the new name was the word or the name Kirche. Kirche. Now, don't miss what happened. Okay, I'm going to say it again. I'm repeating it a little bit because I want you to get this. The absolutely clear word, "ecclesia," which means a called-out community, morphed into an entirely different word, the word kirche, which had an entirely different meaning. Because kirche did not mean a called-out group of people. It meant the Lord's house. And by the way, it was used for... Any holy gathering or secular gathering, it it didn't mean our Lord, it meant the Lord. So whoever the leader was of whatever the particular movement was. Now, between the 4th century and the 6th century, Christianity continued to spread across Europe, making its way to England. And the English word for the Christianity movement, for the Jesus movement, took its cues from this German word, Kirche. And eventually, the English word referred to the movement as, you all know this answer, church. Okay? So with that, the idea of a gathering, a movement, an assembly, or a congregation became a place. It became a place called the church. A word that has been maintained and has been used to this day. What is the name of our organization? Hammock Street Church, right? Now... In virtually every English Bible translation, and by the way, I say virtually because, quite frankly, I haven't read them all, and there may be one out there that isn't, but I'm going to say virtually every English Bible translation, the Greek word ekklesia, is translated church, even though you all now know that it bears no relation to the original idea of a congregation and a movement. In fact the church soon began to be looked at as a new version of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. I can't tell you how many Christians I've met over the years that consider the church to be their version of the temple. It is nothing of the sort. The temple was the place where the people of God gathered because that's where it was believed that the presence of God resided. We know that God resides in our hearts, that God is omnipresent. He's present everywhere. So, this very clumsy and inaccurate linguistic transition also resulted in some pretty bad theology. And it didn't take too long before it became a reality that whoever controlled the church controlled the building and controlled God's Word, controlled the Scripture. And whoever controlled the building and the Scripture controlled the people. In some parts of Europe, It even turned out that whoever controlled the building and the scripture and the people controlled the government. Okay, we don't have that in the United States, notwithstanding the fact that some people believe we do, but we don't. But in those days, the church and the government were inextricably linked. Now, as more time passed, what started as a movement taking the truth of the resurrection and sharing it through the world became an insider-focused, hierarchical, ritual, even sometimes pagan, immoral, destructive, and unethical organization that bore no resemblance whatsoever to the movement that Jesus began in the first century. Okay, so the negative feelings that many people have regarding the church today can be traced directly back to that linguistic change that happened hundreds of years ago. What to do? Well... Something happened in England in the 1500s. So we're jumping ahead, roughly 900 years. And it constituted a positive change of direction. That handsome, rakish lad is a guy by the name of William Tyndale. William Tyndale was an Englishman, he was a priest. He was a linguistic scholar. Actually, Tyndale could speak seven languages. And he was an expert in Hebrew and Greek. And Tyndale was driven to teach the English people the good news of how the followers of Jesus are justified by faith. In his day, however, doing that was easier said than done. So in the 16th century, that's the 1500s, the average person didn't have access to a Bible. Now, we find that really strange, and actually, I was asked the other day by somebody, why don't we carry Bibles? Why don't I have a Bible? Why don't most of you have Bibles? It's because this is 2021, and if you want a Bible, you have it already. It's on your smartphone, or it's on your tablet, and that's just the way we roll. So, if you want to bring a book, great. If you don't, also okay. But in the 16th century, people didn't have that kind of technology, obviously, and they didn't even have access to the Bible. If they wanted to interact with the Bible, they had to go to a church and listen to a priest, And then the priest was going to read from a translation of scripture, Latin, that the average person didn't even understand. Now, we just talked about the fact that if you control the building and the Bible, you control the people. Well, that fact didn't sit well with Tyndale. So he began to translate the Bible. He translated both the Greek and the Hebrew into English. Well, as you might imagine, the church leaders did not approve of that. So Tyndale became somewhat of an outlaw. He was forced, actually, to leave England, which caused him to flee to Germany and continue his work. All right, what happened in Germany? Well, thanks to an inventor by the name of Johannes Gutenberg, maybe you've heard of him, who had, a hundred years earlier, invented a mechanical, movable-type printing press. Because of him and his invention, it was possible to mass-produce books that could then be widely distributed. Prior to Gutenberg, books were individually written, handmade. And as you can imagine, they took a long time and were prohibitively expensive. But using Gutenberg's technology, this printing press, Tyndale printed copies of his English Bible translation, and then he had them smuggled back into England. With that, for the very first time in history... The average person didn't have to rely upon a church and a priest to read the Bible to them because they could afford their own copy of the Bible written in a language they understood, written in their own language. Sadly for Tyndale, however, a friend, some friend, ratted him out to the church. Hey, remember that Tyndale guy you kicked out of here? Well, he's smuggling English Bibles back in. And that's what he was ratted out for, the crime of distributing English Bibles. So what happened? He was dragged back to England, tried for heresy, and upon his conviction, the church had him hanged. And then, for good measure, they cut his dead body down and burned it. And he was discarded as a heretic and an enemy of the church. That's adding insult to injury. But the genie was already out of the bottle. English-speaking people had a copy of the Bible, and the church, the church that had been identified as its location and its, and its control over the people, started to lose its power. At his trial, Tyndale made his aspirations clear. He did not back down, he did not change his story. Here's what Tyndale said at his trial. He said this: if God spares my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plough to know more of the scriptures than thou dust. Interesting he didn't survive the trial, but that still happened. Tyndale accused the religious leaders of manipulating the Bible, the people and the church to control the people and to control the political polity, to control the politics of the day. That was his calling in life. Alright, now you got a little bit of a history lesson. Everybody put your books away. Little pop quiz. No, no, Anybody get anxiety over that? I did, just saying it. Anyway, the real question is this. So what? How does this fit into today's message? Well, when Tyndale was translating the Greek New Testament, when he got to the word ecclesia, he didn't translate it as church. When he got to the word ecclesia, Tyndale translated it as congregation. This was Tyndale's way of trying to reclaim the original intent of the Jesus movement. In the first century, he was trying to reclaim Jesus' intent to have the movement be a growing, multicultural, multi-ethnic, mission-centered movement of people with a simple, straightforward message centered on a single historical event, the resurrection of Jesus. And even though that cost Tyndale his life, he got it right. I I know he got it right. I don't know what that noise is. I apologize. Because that's what Jesus said. In chapter 16 of Matthew's gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, first book of the New Testament, Jesus asked this question of his disciples. He said, who do people say the son of man is? By the way, son of man was one of the terms that Jesus used for himself. It comes from the Old Testament. It comes from uh, Daniel's prophecy and, and others as well. So Jesus is essentially saying, listen, What are people on the street saying about me? All right, so he asked his people. He asked his disciples, and they replied. Here's what they said. Some say John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. And still others say you're Jeremiah or or one of the other prophets. And then Jesus asked Peter, one of the disciples who was closest to him, he said this. He asked Peter this. What about you, Peter? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered this way. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. So, okay, Peter, what are they saying about me on the street? Peter says, boss, I don't even need to think about it. I know it. I know this answer. You're the Messiah. And Jesus said, you're right. Good answer. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this. And by the way, the this here has been uh, subject to discussion. It's actually part of what caused the Catholic Church to go one way and the Protestant Churches to go another way. But he said, this, which is the statement that you made, Peter, that said Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's the son of the living God. Jesus said, this wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And then he continues, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Peter, by the way, Peter uh, was a nickname, actually, uh, Petros, which really meant, um, essentially, it means rocky. Like, that was his nickname. He's rocky. Hey, rock. You know, that kind of thing. That's what he was. And you are Peter. This is a play on words, and on this rock, not Peter, Peter. But the statement that he made that Jesus is the Christ on this rock, I will build my church. By the way, that's our word. That's ecclesia. I will build my, not my church building, not a place. I will build my ecclesia. I will build my gathering, my congregation, my assembly, my movement. So on this rock, I will build my ecclesia and the gates of... Now, I'm going to say something that you might not remember, or you might know differently, but listen up. The gates of Hades, that's actually what the Hebrew or the Greek says, the gates of Hades. Hades is known as the realm of the dead, or you can even... uh, Your translation may say hell, but the... And that was not a curse word, kids. It's just what the translation says. But the gates of Hades, it's a better idea to think of that as death, the gates of death will not overcome it. So, Jesus was saying this. He was saying, no matter who dies, no matter how many people die, this movement will not be overcome by death. This movement won't die. This movement will continue forever because the church was birthed as a movement of people centered on a simple message and a simple idea. It wasn't about a building. It wasn't about any of the things that the church would become in the years that followed. It was about a movement. Well, they crucified Jesus not long after that. And as you probably have heard, in three days he rose from the dead. And after that he spent 40 days with his followers. And after the 40 days, he gathered his followers together on a hillside, and he gave them final instructions. And one of those instructions can be found in Matthew 28. I'm going to read it to you. I'm not going to put it up. But Jesus said, you've heard this before if you've been to church once or twice, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded to you. Now, We move on from here to the book of Acts. It's known in full as the Acts of the Apostles. And this is the book written by Dr. Luke, written by Luke. And this was the early history book of the church. So in the book of Acts, Jesus again talks about the beginning of the church. Remember, Jesus already told them that he would be launching his multiplying movement on Peter's statement that Jesus is the Messiah, So when the disciples and and Mary and Jesus' siblings, yes, he had siblings, brothers and sisters, and probably about a hundred other people. So when they, Acts chapter one, verse six, gathered around him and asked him, Lord, Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? By the way, by this question, we can tell what they were thinking. They were thinking that Jesus was going to come in and establish a kingdom on earth. They were not thinking that Jesus came in to establish a growing multicultural, multi ethnic gathering that we would call the church, okay? So they didn't know yet, but here's how Jesus answered them. None of your business. That's what he said. It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But, but here's something that is for you. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. All right. So now we get to the word witness. What does the word witness mean? Good news. It means exactly what you think it means. Okay. It means somebody who can testify to something that they've seen who can testify to something they've seen or experienced that's a witness so jesus says you will be my witnesses in jerusalem which is where they were in all judea which was sort of the county they were in the larger area the surrounding region and samaria which was a place that no none of them wanted to go and to the ends of the earth. Now, the Bible doesn't give us any more detail about that scene. We don't know what people said. But we can surmise that upon hearing Jesus' words, the hundred or so people that were listening probably looked at Jesus with, you know, maybe mouths agape, somewhat incredulously. And they say, well, what's going on here? I mean, he was crucified by the Romans. The religious leaders hated him. And they listened to him. Tell them that they, those people who followed this guy that had just been killed, those people were going to spread his message far and wide. So they naturally had a few more questions. All right, we get Jerusalem. We're already here. And we we get Judea. We can do that. But Samaria, we don't want to do that. And the rest of the world. Hey, boss, do you realize how big the world is? Do you realize what you're even saying? By the way, they did not realize how big the world was. They'd never been anywhere. But they did think, how are we going to do that? We're nobody. But that's precisely what happened. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're part of the fulfillment of that very prophecy. Oh, I'm being remiked here. And now I'm here. All right, that's better, right? Okay, good. And then what happened? Jesus left. And the group of people went back to Jerusalem, and they prayed. And a couple of weeks later... It was the Jewish celebration of Pentecost. Now, if you're Jewish, you probably have never heard of the celebration of Pentecost. You know it by its Hebrew name, Shavuot, which is the Feast of Weeks. And the Feast of Weeks is the celebration of the day that God handed down his law to his people from Mount Sinai. So once again, the Jews and their proselytes, proselytes are Gentile converts to Judaism. Once again, they were in Jerusalem. And they came there from all over the known world. And the Scripture tells us that while these disciples of Jesus, these followers, these hundred or so people were meeting with Mary and the apostles and Jesus' siblings, and they were praying together, at that time, God the Holy Spirit arrived. And he arrived in a very powerful way, just as Jesus said he would. Remember the power? We talked about that before. The word for power in the Greek is the word dunamis, dunamis. Which is where we get the word dynamite. So the Holy Spirit arrives with power, big explosion, explosive power, tongues of fire, and each of the believers was suddenly able to speak the languages of all the other people who were not speaking their language, all the other people were speaking who had come to town. And the out of town visitors looked at these Galate, Galileans who had gathered. And they wondered, how are these Galileans able to speak our language? Galileans don't speak foreign languages. And they continued. What's all this talk about a crucified and risen Messiah? And with that, this very small, very localized movement became a multinational, multi-ethnic, multicultural movement, just as Jesus predicted. Now, the people were talking. They didn't know what they were seeing. Some said, these folks must be drunk. And some said, no, they're not drunk. They're actually speaking intelligible languages. I can understand them in Egyptian, and they don't speak Egyptian. And then Peter decided to step up and preach what would be the first sermon in the church. And with that, the church was born. And once again, this is exactly as Jesus described it. It was a gathering. It was an ecclesia. This was opening day of the church. So Peter began by reminding the crowd that they were witnessing the fulfillment of the prophecy in the Old Testament. He pointed out that just as God had promised, the message that had been given to the Jews was about to become a message for the entire world. And then Peter said to all of these people who were mystified by the fact that all those Galileans knew their language, Peter said this, fellow Israelites, listen to this, Jesus of Nazareth, Was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you. By the way, why do you say it to them? Because they'd seen it. These people had been in Jerusalem for years through him, as you yourselves know. They know, they saw it. This man handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. So here, Peter is speaking. He's only talking about two months after the resurrection. This is not an extended period of time. This is just a couple months. So the people who were listening had likely heard Jesus speak or possibly seen Jesus carrying his cross to the, to the hill in Calvary. They, they likely had met some of Jesus's followers along the way. They might have even known someone whom Jesus had healed. So this wasn't some old, crusty, dusty story to them. This was recent history, Peter continued. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So Peter preached the gospel in his first sermon. Peter continued. He said this, God has raised this Jesus to life. And here's our word, our next word. And we are all witnesses of it. God raised Jesus to life. We're all witnesses. That's what Jesus was talking about. You're going to be my witnesses. They weren't merely giving witness to something that Jesus taught. You've heard that many times. Oh, do you know who Jesus is? Do you believe in Jesus? Yes, I believe he was a great teacher. Yes, he was a great teacher, but that's not really the main point. They weren't merely giving witness to something Jesus taught. They were repeating something they they had seen. And this is important. These first century believers weren't just teaching what Jesus taught. Their faith was not about embracing a teaching. That's really important. From the very beginning, their faith was about embracing a historical event. They were actual witnesses to the fact that Jesus was crucified. Actual witnesses to the fact that Jesus came back to life. And it wasn't long, long ago. It was two months before. So Peter continued. Verse 33. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. God orchestrated the entire thing. Verse 36, therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, remember he's talking about the Jewish leaders, both Lord and Messiah. God made this Jesus. This is all God's doing. And Peter points his finger to some who were in Jerusalem, said, God made this Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter's saying, some of you were there. Some of you might have accused him, and some of you walked away and didn't defend him. God made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, What shall we do? Okay, so now know that action is needed. Brothers, what shall we do? We remember. We saw the whole thing. We know people who were there, but now it's too late. He's gone. He's ascended to heaven. What shall we do? And then Peter said unto them, maketh sure that from now on you attendeth church every week. Good. I'm really glad you are laughing because you know Peter didn't say that, right? It's not what he said. This was opening day of the church. This is a day filled with power. This is a day filled with wonder. This is a day filled with all of the potential of God's mission here on earth. This was much, much more than church attendance, but when we think of church, we think attend. I got to attend church. I got to get back to church. I haven't been to church in a while. I need to get the kids back to church. Got to go to church. Got to hurry to church. Hurry up. We're late for church. But knowing what you now know about the ecclesia, as it was designed, that doesn't make sense anymore, right? The church wasn't a place to go. The church was a gathering of people. A gathering of God's people. A people to belong to. It was a multiplying gathering. It was centered on a simple message about a single event and there was enthusiasm, and there was power, and there was excitement, and there was a buzz in the air, and there was momentum all about the message defining the event. And that message was to spread throughout the whole world. Peter actually said this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter continued, The promise, that's the gift of the Holy Spirit, is for you and your children and for all who are far off. Now, you've read this before, some of you? You ever wonder who are all who are far off? Who is that? It's you. It's me. It's our families. Peter was saying that this isn't just for Jerusalem. This isn't just for those people in that time and in that place. This entire thing, this entire movement, the power is for All of us. It's for everybody who is far off. People who are far off geographically. People who are far off chronologically in a different time. People who are far off spiritually. This was something that was intended to reach beyond the lifetimes of the people who were listening. And beyond our lifetime as well. Remember how we talked about it a few minutes ago? Jesus said the gates of Hades, the gates of death, will not stop it. That's because this is a movement that won't die with the original generation. The movement lives on. Death will not stop the movement. The ecclesia will continue to grow and thrive. This was a multi-generational, multicultural movement. This was an event that was going to reach people who were far off, people who hadn't even been born in places that didn't even know anything about the story. For all who are far off for all whom the Lord, our God, will call. God will call those far-off people, and he'll keep on doing it. And after that, Peter made the first altar call. For those of you who didn't grow up in a Baptist church, an altar call is when you say, come on up if you want to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, right? So he did that, and after that, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. By the way, you know how long it takes to baptize 3,000 people? They were there for days. 3,000 people joined the movement that day. 3,000 people were baptized. Now, that's still a lot of people, by the way. Even today, 3,000 new Christians, that's something. But 2,000 years ago, that was totally unprecedented. And that was just opening day. That day, Thousands of people believe that Jesus is the Christ, just as Peter said. Jesus is the son of the living God. He was crucified by Rome. He rose from the dead. And they believed that Peter and the others were eyewitnesses to the event. They repented of their sins. They were baptized into this new gathering, this new ecclesia that would one day become known as the church. It was just as Jesus said it would happen. So today... 2,000 years later, here we are, in Boca Raton, Florida. You couldn't get much further from Jerusalem if you tried, although some people will disagree with that. You know what still connects us with people from every culture around the world? It's not the location where we worship, and it's not the way that we worship, and it's not the way that we do church. It's not our customs. It's not our traditions. It's none of that. The thing we have in common is that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who was crucified, entombed, and then rose from the dead, and after his death, he paid for the sins of the world just as Jesus predicted he would. It's not about a location. It's not about a building. And it's not just for one type of people. It was for everyone who would become a part of this movement. And the world has never been the same since. We belong to a movement. And what's one identifying factor of a movement? It moves, right? It's a good name if it moves. So we have to keep the movement moving. We know a truth that must be shared. And by God's grace, since opening day, there have been believers And there have been missionaries and there have been evangelists and there have been Bible smugglers and Bible translators and preachers and others who have cared for people all in Jesus' name. All along the way, there have been people who've understood that the church isn't just a place and the church isn't a hierarchy. There were people who refused to be controlled, but people who understood that Jesus is for all people. And it was their opportunity, their job, to do their part to let the world know So, when we come together here at Hannock Street Church, we are part of this ecclesia. We are part of this church that started 2,000 years ago on opening day in the city of Jerusalem. When we volunteer, here at Hammock Street, in the children's ministry, the youth ministry, in the tech booth, on the worship team, on the greeting team, on the coffee and donut team. When we do that, we're being the church. We're part of the movement. When we give our tithe, we're being the church. When we meet in our small groups, our life groups, we're being the church. When we pray with brothers and sisters whenever and wherever, about whatever, we're being the church. When we pray for others, we're being the church. When we participate with food for the poor, when we participate with first care pregnancy centers, when we participate with Boca Helping Hands, we're being the church. When we walk around the neighborhood, around this building, we pick up trash, we're being the church. There has always been and there will always be a group of people who understand that the church is not a location, nor is it a style or an approach The church is about coming together around one simple idea, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose on the third day, and that this message is for the entire world. Now, I don't know what you used to think when you heard the word church, but I hope that after this morning, you might think a little differently. And I hope that you're careful to never allow yourself to go back to thinking that the church is just a place, that the church is just a building, that the church is just a location. I hope that instead you understand that the church is a movement, and it's a movement that still has extraordinary momentum. And I hope that from today on, we can all live our lives together, staying on task and staying on mission just as they were on opening day. Next week, we'll pick up right here where this story leaves off. But I want you to know this before we're done. Guys, this is your story. These are the people who made Hammock Street possible. There has been and there will always be people who get it. There will always be people who understand the ecclesia, the gathering of the local church around one simple idea and one simple event that has changed and continues to change the world. So... Let's always be a gathering that's right in the center of what God is doing in our community and in our world. And all the people heard and agreed and said, amen. Won't you pray with me? Father God, thank you for the word this morning. Thank you for helping us to understand what you meant by your ecclesia, what you meant by your gathering, what you meant by calling a people together to take this good news, this gospel message, that even though we're a mess, when we recognize that and turn from our old ways and turn to God, God will save us. God will draw us in. God will give us eternal life with him. So, God, as we leave here this morning, we ask that you help us to remember this throughout the week. Help us to remember that we're part of this movement. Help us to know how you've called us so we can serve you with whatever gifts and talents you've given us all for your glory. God, we love you. We thank you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.